Uh, for those that I've not already met, um, great to, to say hi to some of our visitors this morning already, but if I've not yet met you, then I, please, if I don't manage to get to you, please come in and say hi to me before you go this morning. Um, we are in a series entitled Abundant Life, but some of you may um, not have clocked the fact we did something really different last week. Who was around last week? We had a harvest fair last week, so I thought I'd just link the things, you know, to show there's a seamless flow in the life of the church. Um, we had a harvest fair last week, and uh, it looked like there was probably something like 60-odd guests that came and were with us last week for the first time. I don't know the stories of all of them, but there were some getting prayed for that had never been prayed for before. Some of you were doing that praying. Uh, I know um, the sewing club that Maria was uh, leading on Tuesday, there were some people who'd come last Sunday, and they were able to make use of another opportunity to engage with the church uh, community on Tuesday evening. God was doing more things in people's lives out of that. So I just want to say, God is at work. And uh, once upon a time, uh, it used to be normal for people to go to church every Sunday. Some of you may be old enough to remember that. Uh, And uh, then, I'm not pointing any fingers, I'm just trying to be real. And uh, one of the things that can happen when we've got friends in different parts of the country and just maybe aren't at church in the same place every single week is we can miss the flow of what God's doing. Uh, he was at work in the other hall there last week in one kind of a way. He's been at work all week and he's working now. And my prayer is that as we look at his word, that he would continue to be at work in our lives Uh, and bringing about this abundant life. Our series this term, we've called it Abundant Life, Studies from Romans. We're not going through the book of Romans sort of one line at a time all the way through, but we're picking out particular passages that highlight for us all that Jesus has done for us. And this morning, we're going to get to Romans 1. So please do turn there. We're only going to look at two verses, Romans 1 uh, and verses 16 to 17. Whilst you're going there, Uh, Let me say that some of you may have a bit of a deja vu feeling this morning, because what I'm going to share this morning, I shared in significant measure at Transform. I did some Bible reading. Transform is the name of the summer camp that we do together with our family of churches from across the UK. And I spoke from this passage then. This morning's talk is abridged from that and also more applied. So it's not exactly the same, but there'll be certain moments if you were there, then you'll be thinking, I'm sure I've heard that before, but you you have. Looking at it the other way around, if this is the first time uh, recently that you've engaged with Romans 1, I want to encourage you, there's more online, more of me talking about Romans 1 online. And not only that, there's an amazing testimony uh, from Emma Barclay-Watt from Manchester of the grace of God at work in her life through the gospel. You can go to the Salt and Light website. That's the name of our wider family of churches, and you can find that if you want to dig in further. Um, One more thing to say before we get to Romans 1 is uh, there is a prayer meeting tonight. Yeah, good. You can tell who the really spiritual people are in church, can't you? Just right right there, prayer meeting, and there's some excitement. That's great. Seriously, we're starting a new pattern of Sunday evening prayer once a month, first Sunday of the month. Uh, There we go. So tonight, we're meeting here at 7.30 for a couple of hours to pray. And with whatever God's doing amongst us, he loves inspiring us to pray and responding to our prayers. There's a mystery in it that I don't understand. But it's a delight to pray, that God inspires us to pray, and we pray, and he responds to our praying. And he's the author of all of it, and yet we're involved. 
as his collaborators and companions in his kingdom. So please do come and pray. Romans 1 uh, and verses 16 and 17 says this wonderfully. Paul writes, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and then to the Gentile. That's a historical statement. It had started in Israel with the Jews and then moved to the other nations, the Gentiles. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last. Just as it's written, the righteous will live by faith. So we're just going to walk through these verses this morning, and we're going to do that by paying attention to a few key words. Those words will be gospel, power, righteousness, and faith. So the first word is gospel. Uh, The Greek word for this, uh, euangelion, we get a, a, a word when that's taken into English. It's sometimes said as evangel. I don't know whether you've heard anyone use the word the evangel. That's a literal reading of it from the Greek. And why am I saying that? Well, it's the word from which we get a couple of others that we do use perhaps a bit more often. One of those is evangelism, which is the activity of speaking out this gospel, this evangel. And also the word evangelical. I don't know whether you sometimes get those two words confused. They actually, though they have a common root, are used to mean two really very different things. Evangelism is the act of speaking out this good news. Evangelical, for historical reasons, it goes back to 16th century France, I think, and the way that they then use the word is used to mean people who really believe that the Bible is God's final authority for us in all matters of faith and practice. It's not as closely linked to this use of the word here, evangel. But originally, though we've taken this word in English and used it in those ways, this word originally wasn't a religious word. It didn't start out in a spiritual or religious setting. It was the word that people would use when they had an announcement to make. So the closest we have, I think, in British history is someone standing on a street corner, maybe having a bell to ringing to ring, but certainly shouting out, Oh, yay! Oh, yay! And you know there was something to listen to. What it, some, some news had taken place, and someone had come to tell you about it. And that's how the word was used in the ancient Roman Empire. They didn't shout, oh, yay, but someone would shout, euangelion! And people would stop. And, oh, I wonder what that's about. Better go and find out. It was a word that meant news. And the bit at the beginning, the E-U at the beginning, meant it was Good news. This gospel, sometimes maybe we reduce it in our understanding to thinking it's kind of good advice about how to live life. If only we followed it, we might gain something more of a spiritual experience. But it is news. I think we get confused these days. Maybe it's because the word news has got the word new in it. And we live in an age where information comes to us instantly from everywhere around the world. And we've somehow got hold of the idea that what news must be is whatever's new. 
I, that's not the right way to understand news. You know, the first time I seriously got interested in the political news was about six years ago. We'd gained a vision as a church for starting a new school, which if you're new here and you don't know, we've done since then. Hooray! It's in its fourth year and it's going great. Uh, some parents from the school here, it's wonderful. And I became aware that for that vision to come to pass, it would make a massive difference if the Tories and the Lib Dems would form a coalition that supported a particular Conservative Party policy. That is, And I began to be interested in the political news and to look daily to find out what was being decided as the news came out because... I could see the significance that it had for us, the significance that it had for our city. That actually is why we listen to news, not just because it's new and we're bored, but because things happen in the world that have significance for us. You know, if you hear the story of someone being murdered by their Uh, husband in Doncaster, well, that may not be of massive significance. It might be in the news, but it's not of massive significance if you're living here in Oxford and not married to that guy. Probably all of us then, I would imagine. But if you hear the story of someone being attacked in the streets as has indeed happened in our city this week, I'm sure most of you heard the news of an assault that took place, suddenly your ears are open. It's, it's significant for us. We, a 14-year-old girl was attacked this week, abducted on the streets. I have a 13-year-old daughter. It will make a difference. I've just been having a long-standing argument with Bev, my wife, which I have now just lost, saying she's 13, for goodness sake, she can get out and about and make her own way to places safely, stop fussing. That news will change our lifestyle. This week, it will make a difference. News is the report of events that change things for us. That's why we're interested. News is the report of events that make a difference for us. The gospel of Jesus Christ is news. It's not just some advice or some interesting thoughts. It is the news of the fact that the Jewish Messiah both died and was raised back to life. That's the event. And though it happened in a country far away and many years ago, that event has consequences that are still of interest for us today. Because that event made a difference to a spiritual reality which continues to impact us today. That's the gospel. And this gospel is powerful, it says in Romans chapter 1. This gospel is the power of God. This event isn't just a marginal thing. The news of this event, the consequences of this event of Jesus' death, and resurrection, they challenge and they change everything. Now, at this point, there's something going on in many people's hearts and minds, which is, well, yes, 
It's kind of true, Steve, isn't it? Because, I mean, it's made a difference in my life, and there's a bunch of other people in this room it's made a difference for, but I don't see it making a difference to, the, to everyone, really. And, it ha- and the question arises, you know, how powerful, really, is this gospel? It's, it's made a difference to us, but we live in a nation where the clear majority of people seem to be unaffected by it. Uh, Earlier in the summer, there was a football tournament. Some of you may well have been aware. The Euro 2016. And uh, the Welsh football team. Is there anybody Welsh here this morning? Yeah, you're going to claim that victory right there. Because what happened in Euro 2016 was that the Welsh football team pulled off a remarkable victory. They beat Belgium 3-1. Wow. Wales beat Belgium 3-1. It's amazing. Uh, To that news, there are three kinds of reaction that take place. Uh, The first reaction was the most common one that just took place in the room, which is complete disinterest. (laughs) Uh, God bless you. There is a second reaction that takes place. Is there anyone Belgian here? You see, there are some people, mostly Belgian, but also some English people that don't like to see Wales doing better than England, for whom the news of Wales' victory was actually just unpleasant to hear. And if anybody were to mention it, you'd really wish they hadn't. They're just like, please don't. I don't want to hear it. The second reaction that can take place to news. Of course, the third reaction which was shared by most of the people of the uh, Principality of Wales, was uh, joy and delight at how amazing a thing had happened. (laughs) 3-1! And actually, they were right. Of all of those reactions, the only right reaction was the Welsh one. Because something truly remarkable had happened... Never happened before. It was a historic event. Not only that, it was going to have a significant impact on people's behavior and on the health of a nation. If I'd grown up in Wales over the last 30 years, I may not have dreamed of great glory on the football field. But now, if I were growing up in Wales, I could dream with real hope of a future. And there will be countless Boys and girls who will be out and about more active and more healthy because of that one evening than if it had never taken place. It was a significant event. It will make a difference in many, many thousands of lives. And the widespread indifference is just misplaced. It does not reflect the reality of the great thing that's happened. So is the gospel powerful? Yes, it is. An event took place which makes an amazing difference. Jesus died and he rose again. And it makes a difference to everything. And not just to one principality, but to the whole world. There's some people like, yeah, whatever. (laughs) Just like you were. 
five minutes ago. Does it mean that the news isn't good? No. Does it mean that the news isn't powerful? No, of course not. What about when you occasionally come across those Belgians who wish you'd shut up? (laughs) Does the fact that some people say, I don't want to hear your Christian stuff. I don't. Does that make it less powerful? Not for a moment. The gospel is good news. If the news of a Welsh football team victory can make a difference, then the news that God himself became man and died and rose again makes a whole load more. This week, um, I, was, I went out on the streets in Bicester with Mark Ely, who is the pastor of what is now called Lifehouse Community Church in Bicester. And we went on the streets to meet people and seek to tell them about Jesus. Um, we were both a bit tired, is the truth of it. He just had some really bad news. He just lost his job. Not the one being a pastor, his other job. It's, I hadn't just sacked him. <laughs> I, I probably wouldn't have tried to go on the streets with him if I'd just sacked him. I hadn't done that. I, and um, we, But we set out to just try and tell people about Jesus. We had an, actually, as it turned out, almost all the people that we tried to talk to turned out to be believers. We had a whole bunch of lovely conversations. Um, and... Uh, yeah, there, was, there was one person that I spoke to. I, said, I asked him this question, which I find a very helpful question. I said to him, can I ask you a question? He said, yes. I said, if God could do a miracle for you today, what would it be? He said, I'm an atheist. And, and walked off. <laughs> and I was left there thinking, that is peculiar, isn't it? Just because you don't believe in God doesn't mean he's not going to answer your prayers. And I, I remember thinking, I want to chase after him and tell him. I thought, but actually... Some people just aren't interested. That's okay for us. It doesn't mean that we... I'm sorry, it's okay for the, that the gospel isn't received with joy by everyone. It doesn't make any difference to the fact that for those that we spoke to, you said, I do believe, and yes, we could pray. It's powerful things and then take place. Is this making sense? The death and resurrection of Jesus is not only a special day in history, but because of what happened on that first Easter, every prayer prayed to God is, has different response to it now and for every day in between because of what happened on that day. For those who will recognize it, the cross of Christ tells them that they are loved by God who sent his son to die for them. And the way that news works is, I mean, we've had the parable of the sower. We have one of the the less positive bits of the parable of the sower read to us this morning. Um, It's good to have our attention drawn to those things. The thrust of the parable of the sower is the word of God. It's like a seed. It's like, what does a seed do? It germinates and it puts down roots grows and as it grows it brings life and the hoped for end of that is fruitfulness which is why we're paying attention to what might get in the way of that process but the word is like a seed once it's in you it brings life and the news of Jesus death and resurrection it's like that do you remember the first time I mean, the, this made sense to you. This, do you. I remember I was sat in a cinema watching a film. Billy Graham was preaching. Some of you will know that this is my story. And he said, 
This probably should have been a little bit of a warning sign that I was going to end up doing a PhD on insect behavior. But what he said was um, Christ coming down to earth was a bigger humiliation and a greater act of love than if you'd seen an ant's nest in trouble and chosen to become an ant to get in there and sort it out. And for whatever reason, God chose that moment. Maybe he was sowing a seed of future entomological interest. But in that moment, I saw it's like, God loves me. People have been telling me that a lot. But in that moment, God loves me and he sent his son to die for me. Wow. And since that seed popped open, began to germinate, it has done nothing but bring me life and goodness, wholeness, forgiveness, transformation. I'm becoming more and more like Jesus because of a word that was sown in me. Does that, anyone else have that? Kind? Might not have involved ants. But have you had that experience? Oh, come on. It's a church. You must have done. That's what the gospel's like. The gospel is news and it's powerful. It's got life in it. And it does us good. Third word, righteousness. Bit of a mouthful. Um, I want to actually put up another word that's an even more mouthful kind of a word next to it, and I'll explain why in a moment. Righteousness and justification. Justification. Why have I put these two words here? Well, the reason is that whilst they're very different sounding words in English, if you go back to the Greek text, they actually come from the same family of words. So there's this word on the left in Greek, dikaios, which means righteous. Okay? Then there's another word, the word that we translate righteousness, kind of logically enough, looks a bit similar. Dekeosune is kind of similar. But when we get a word that we translate as to justify, you know what? It's the same thing. There's another word, it's a verb. Dekeo means to justify. So we might use the words righteous or righteousness and justify or justification and wonder how they're connected. Well, for the Greeks for whom the New Testament was first written, uh, they didn't see any division between those things. It's all just the same thing. So it might have been that we could have, instead of saying justified, perhaps someone historically could have said, not I've been justified, but I've been righteous. That would have worked fine. I, I wonder if the reason that choice wasn't made was because I think the word righteousification is even worse than justification as a, as a mouthful. And maybe they were just trying to find a way of keeping the number of syllables down in order to I mean there was some hope that people would at least sometimes say it one to another in daily conversation. But the, these things mean the same. And so what it means for us to be justified is that we are made righteous. This righteousness... It has two strands to it. There's a relational friendship strand, and there is a moral, legal strand to it. And the relational bit is to do with the fact that righteousness means I am accepted by God. Abraham was declared to be righteous in the Old Testament and to be a friend of God. To be righteous means to be accepted 
in relationship with God. Nothing standing in the way. Josh leading us in worship earlier, or, and Al together, I think both said, God has made a way, heaven stands open, Jesus has done it. We can enter right into the place of God's presence and enjoy relationship with him. And righteousness speaks of that access to God. Righteous people get to have access to God. The other aspect of righteousness is it means you actually are, like really are, holy. Really are. Like you do the right things. There's a moral quality. And if you were taken before a law court, so where the legal bit comes in, you would be declared all right. You've done the right stuff. You're not guilty. You're innocent. And righteousness has those two strands to it. And so when we're justified, what happens is we are declared righteous. And you may have heard it said that to be justified means that it's just as if I'd never sinned. How does the fact that Jesus rose from the dead, died and rose again, how does that mean that I can be made righteous, that I can be accepted by God and genuinely changed morally? How does that work? Well, the New Testament gives a number of different explanations. It says that Jesus died as our substitute in our place so that the death that would have come to us, someone else has died and so we can live forever with God. It speaks about a ransom payment, the the sort of thing that you pay to a kidnapper or in the ancient world, a slave owner, so that Jesus' death was costly. And that price that he paid was like a payment that would be made to set someone free from slavery. But as well as explaining in those ways and in others how it all worked, the New Testament says something else even clearer and stronger, that even if you don't understand how it works, The fact is that it does. Because Jesus was dead and is alive. Paul, in his preaching, sometimes didn't trouble with explaining to people how it all worked. He just said, Jesus was dead and he's alive. And that was his gospel proclamation. And that alone was enough. The news of that was enough for people to grab hold of what God had done. Let me try and explain how this, these two strands come together of acceptance in Christ and our actually being changed. I have three daughters. The oldest one is the 13-year-old. And they are flesh and blood Joneses. That's them. I was there when they were all born. I'm really sure that they are my daughters. Uh, now, if... Bev and I were to adopt another girl and give her the name Jones, that doesn't make her our flesh and blood daughter. It doesn't mean that she has been born in the same way as the others. So in a sense, some might say, is she really your daughter? Except the, the reality is that if we adopt her, yes, she is. She is our daughter just as much as the others. And the reason that she's our daughter is simply because we have declared that she's our daughter. We would have gone to some formal context of a law court and declared the fact we are adopting her. She is now our daughter. And we will treat her exactly like our other daughters. 
And so her status with us has changed. She's gone from being uh, outside of our family to being in our family. She has been accepted amongst us. She is connected to us. There's nothing standing in the way. You know, our girls barge into our bedroom or the bathroom or any other room of the house whenever they, well, especially when they were younger, would be mortified if you thought that she did that. She's 13, she does not do that. <laughs> Just, I have to be very clear, careful about that. But they did, kids do that. It's like, I belong here. They know that they belong. That's how it is with us and God. But the fact of us having adopted another daughter would not automatically make her live like us. But having adopted her, she'd have come into the family and would have time and space in which to learn to live like us. She'd have some choices to make along the way, but there will be opportunity to learn to become more (laughs) Jones-like, which of course is what everyone would love to do. So (laughs) whether or not you'd like to be more Jones-like, we do all get to be more Christ-like, because that's how it works spiritually. We get adopted into God's family. He accepts us. We are declared righteous. You are accepted. We've been justified. It's just as if I'd never sinned, never done anything wrong that would get in the way of my relationship with God. It's been dealt with. I'm in. I've now got a lifetime to work out the significance of that. What on earth does that mean for me and how I live and who I am and where I'm going Well, theologians describe those two different things. On the one hand, there's justification, the being declared righteous and accepted. And the other thing they call sanctification, which means there's actually a whole lot of process that now kicks in. So that as well as being declared righteous, we can increasingly live lives that really are actually, like if you looked at me and took a video, you'd see I am righteous. That's how it works. And all of that happens because of the gospel. We receive that news, and it comes to us like a seed that germinates. It cracks open, and it starts to bring life. As soon as it cracks open, as soon as we respond, something happens between us and God, and the way is made open, and we know that we're adopted by him. And then we've got the whole of life to live out, understanding and exploring what that means. That happens, Paul writes, by faith. He writes, this righteousness comes by faith, verse 17. A righteousness that is by faith from first to last. Uh, In other translations, you might see it written, something that's a more literal translation, a a righteousness that is from faith to faith. That is, it begins with faith, it'll end with faith, and everything in between will all be about faith. This righteousness comes by faith. John Calvin wrote this about faith. He wrote, faith means that we come empty, but with mouths open. That's what John Calvin wrote, his definition of faith. Faith means we come empty, but with mouths open, which is why I put up this picture of baby birds, they're not doing anything in their life. Their whole life consists of, I am empty and my mouth is open. That's it. They are a picture for us of faith. Faith 
is really simple. But it's really humbling. This is the most difficult part of it, in fact, is that it is humbling. Who wants to be that vulnerable? Anyone? Good. See, the journey, the journey is very often best described as gradually, gradually accepting the truth that we are that vulnerable. We are like grass of the field, here today and gone tomorrow. The whole of life is fragile. We, are, we, we delude ourselves that we're strong and capable and live forever. There's a truth here. And isn't it amazing that what the gospel encourages us to do and empowers us to do is to live with reality. It's not some escape from reality. We truly are vulnerable, fragile, powerless to achieve the things that most matter. The gospel comes to us and says, Jesus has done it for us. And a righteousness from God is revealed. Well, how do I get hold of that? What do I have to do? Just have to receive it. Just open your mouth. Acknowledge that you're empty. This faith, this faith, it's really an act of desperation. It's despairing of any other source of help than God himself. If God doesn't help me, I'm sunk. That's faith. So this message, this gospel of Jesus Christ, it's powerful stuff. It tells us of an event that means we can be righteous. That is accepted by God and transformed from the inside out. It's powerful. Uh, It always has been powerful and it always will be. I was prompted this week to read a little bit of local church history. The prompt, in fact, was being sat in Charlie and Anita Cleverley's house with pastors from other churches across the city and we were thinking about what to do with Love Oxford next summer. For those of you who aren't aware, that's a Sunday when many churches in the city cancel their normal Sunday gathering and we all meet together outdoors somewhere. And somehow, talking about that, and someone said, oh, my church has been going 180 years. And I said, well, one day maybe we'll be as proper as you are if we last that long. And we had that kind of conversation. It prompted me to look into church history locally. And I found myself reading about the primitive Methodists. Anyone here got a primitive Methodist background? Just interested. Um, In this day of branding your church... Would you call your church primitive? I don't know. Presumably not. But for them, it was a really positive thing. It was about saying they wanted to get hold of the early fire and uh, fervor of Methodism. Because Wesley, John Wesley, was um, active in leading the Methodist movement from about 1750 to about 1800. And in his lifetime, the Methodist movement grew to having about 72,000 members in Britain and Ireland. In 50 years, 72,000 members. Now, some people are aware of that history, look back and say, oh, the Methodists, that was amazing. This thing took over the nation and it made this massive difference to everything. And we avoided revolution in this nation, unlike France, because of the Methodists. And uh, if any of you are members of the Labour Party, you're frequently reminded that Methodism is really where your roots lie as a political movement. And yet... When Wesley died, there were 72,000 members in Britain and 
Ireland after 50 years of ministry. In another 50 years, by 1850, there were one and a half million Methodists. The period of growth was right there and then between 1800 and 1850. Now, Oxfordshire community churches, of which, as you might imagine, Oxford Community Church is part. That sometimes confuses people, but hopefully that makes sense. Uh, Oxfordshire community churches has been going about 35 years, and in that time, we've planted 15 churches in different locations across the county. In 50 years, between 1800 and 1850, um, the Primitive Methodists, which is a branch of Methodism, they started 44 new churches in Oxfordshire. Anyway, one of the places where they started a church, this is where I'm heading, one of the places that they started a a, a chapel, I should say, was a beautiful little village of Dorchester-on-Thames. It so happened that the local vicar had abandoned his post. He was an absentee vicar, which is something that was quite common in those times, because you got the money anyway. didn't matter if you weren't there. Um, The primitive Methodists, a few of them went into the village... Sunday by Sunday, to seek to proclaim this gospel message. Let me read to you the story as written by a fellow of Kellogg College who's written this up as part of local history here. These primitive Methodists were, for some time, stoned. Uh, As they entered the village on Sabbath mornings and as they left. On one occasion, Mrs. Wielden was hit on the eye with a stone, and another member had two of his teeth knocked out with a stone. A number of young persons of the baser sort were encouraged in this savage treatment of Methodists by some of the higher classes. One of the gentlemen, however, was pious and humane and tried to persuade them to discontinue their visits, saying that the ruffians would no more mind killing one of them than killing a dog. So the question that this raised for me was, how much like them are we? I mean, what was going on for them? Why did they do that? I'm pretty sure that if we started a new outreach, we're going to plant a church in, oh, let's pick somewhere, uh, Farringdon, say, and someone came back the first week and said, well, we got stoned. I don't know if they go back. I mean, I think, I think the, the most natural response would be to go, well, that wasn't the Lord's leading, was it? I wonder where else there might be to go, and our insurance probably doesn't cover that. But they kept going for some time. Why did they do that? Why? Well, they believed that in the village, there would be some people who, when they heard the gospel, it would land as a seed. And it would germinate. And they would discover a relationship with God that they'd never known. And they would be transformed from the inside out and become truly moral, godly people. They believed that would happen. They were so confident that that would happen They kept going back and lost their teeth. I think that's quite a high bar of confidence. 
What actually then happened in Dorchester, this is in about 1835, for anyone who's interested, is that the, key gen- the gentleman who had been organizing the persecution was suddenly arrested by sickness and in a few days died. This event produced a deep and solemn impression, and the persecution ceased. When this difficult season had passed over, the good seed which had been sown sprang up, and this new fellowship flourished. In fact, several of the persecutors were subdued by the power of grace through the gospel, and they were made new in Christ Jesus. Among others, the constable of the village, who'd frequently been employed to drive the preachers from the village, and who was a great drunkard, was converted to the Lord and became a new man. They believed it would happen, and they stuck at it, and it happened. They had confidence that this gospel had power, that people would receive it with faith, and it would both open up heaven, the God of heaven to them in relationship, and bring about a lifelong transformation towards godliness. So we had this picture of abundance at the beginning, abundant fruit of harvest. This abundant life is made available to us through this gospel. I think there are a couple of responses that would be appropriate at this point. And they really relate to those two aspects of righteousness. On the one hand, there is being declared righteous. You're in the family. You're in. And even if you misbehave in the future, we'll still love you. You're in. And maybe some of you need to... Uh, receive that open-mouthed for the first time. Say, you know what? Yes. Actually, yes. I want that. I'm willing to open my mouth and be filled. Um, And then I'm sure there are many of us who are so glad that we've had that experience and been born again, as Jesus describes it, but would just love more of that righteousness to grow and mature in us. As Alison was saying about, mature, the goal is maturity in Christ. And we, we just want more of that. I, you know, I want to be more righteous than I am. I don't know about you. Well, I, I, no, I do know about you. I want you to be more righteous than you are. As well. and I know, whether you share that feeling, I'm... Only you know. It's available to us because of what Jesus did for us. So, um, let's just close our eyes. The first thing I'm going to do is just invite anyone who would like to respond in the first way and say, yes, I, I want in. I want that righteousness of God. I want to know I'm in his family. I'm going to pray a simple prayer. This prayer involves thanking God, apologizing to God, saying sorry for the, the fact that he had, to, he had to send his son and do it because there was a need to deal with rubbish in our lives. So apologizing and 
than saying, I'll follow you. If I, if I can be in your family, I will, I will live that way. I will become a follower in your family. So that's how I'm going to pray. And um, if you need to pray this way this morning, then just pray along with me. I'll leave some gaps as I pray to give you space to do so. So here we go. Lord Jesus, thank you that you died and rose again. Thank you that I can see that makes a difference like I've never seen it before for me. Thank you that you love me enough to take the initiative to make it a way for me to come to you. Jesus, I'm sorry that you had to do that. Jesus, I'm sorry that by myself I've mucked things up and wouldn't have a clue how to find you. I'm sorry that I find that I keep on desiring to do the wrong stuff. It doesn't lead me to you. I thank you that that can change. I pray that you would come to me now. Send your Holy Spirit. Show me that open way into heaven, to God in heaven. Lord, I want to follow you. I pray that you'd give me the grace to do that. Give me the power to do that. Lord, I receive this seed into my life. I pray it would take root. I pray it would germinate. And I pray that you would have all of the fruit that you want in my life. Thank you that all this is possible. Amen. I'm going to hand back to Al. If there's um, anyone who...